Good evening. Uh, 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 I'm Richard Sennett, a familiar inmate to many of you of this institution. Uh, and it's my great pleasure this uh, evening uh, to introduce uh, uh, my colleague and my friend, uh, Matthew Crawford, um, who describes himself as a philosopher and mechanic. And that's true, but it doesn't really give the measure of uh, what, what he's achieved. He's somebody who has really uh, connected up the head and the hand, and the hand and the heart, and uh, taken the world of craft practices in which he's engaged as a motorcycle mechanic and fabricator, and thought about what that kind of making means about being in the world. I wouldn't quite describe you as a Heideggerian, but you're, you're near the precipice uh, of, uh, in a way, of trying to revive the Heideggerian project without, obviously, Heidegger's um, politics about the unity of making and dwelling. Uh, you all, all are here probably because you know his first book, which is um, exactly on, on, that, uh, on that subject. And that book has evolved into something uh, both the same and, and something quite different, which is a book uh, about attention. How do we pay attention? How are we in a thing which is outside our selves. Um, so in a way, the project of, of this Heideggerian project has in, evolved into a project of objectification. But it's also become a really sharp social critique. The fact that in the modern world, we're losing the ability to be able to pay attention. And uh, that's a loss that um, uh, he, Matt tries to reckon uh, in this book and to reckon what could be done about it. Um, as I say, he is by, by background both an academic and a craftsman. He got a PhD at the University of Chicago in politics and then was in the famous... Uh, Committee on Social Thought as a postdoc. And since he's moved to Virginia, he has been involved in an interdisciplinary center called Center for Human Values. I don't know what it's called. It's, uh, it's one of our kind of places. And also has um, in Richmond uh, uh, a business that used to be motorcycle repair and is now motorcycle fabrication. Uh, the way we're going to work this evening is he's going to talk for about 45 minutes. We're going to talk for just a bit, uh, just to start a discussion. And then uh, this should really be a discussion between you and Matt. So... Um, uh, um, um, I, I try and leave about half the evening for that. 
Uh, this room is unfortunately a disaster. It's very hot, so I, I beg your indulgence for it. Uh, and after the formal event uh, is over, just by chance there seem to be the odd number of books around here, and if you buy one, he'll sign it. <laughs> so the book signing will be up here in the front uh, after the formal event. So without former ado, let me welcome to the LSE Matthew Crawford. Thanks a lot. Um, I'm really tickled to be here with Richard Sennett, who's one of my favorite writers and, and favorite human beings. We've, we've gotten to know each other over the last few years. I'm going to move this. So this talk is likely to be um, much more vulgar than you would have expected from that introduction with mention of Heidegger and these things. Um, it's a book about attention, and it, it kind of, one of the germinating moments for it came when I was in the supermarket, and I um, swiped my bank card to pay for my groceries. And so you know how there's um, those intervals between swiping your card, confirming the amount, entering your PIN. Well, during those pauses, I was shown advertisements on the little screen, because some genius had figured out that a person in that situation is a captive audience. And the intervals themselves, which I previously assumed were a mere artifact of the communication technology, now seem to be something more deliberately calibrated. These haltings now served somebody's interest. And I began to see this kind of thing everywhere. Um, it seems a new frontier of capitalism has been opened up by our self-appointed disruptors. It's one where you win competitive advantage by being the most uh, aggressive in digging up and monetizing every bit of private headspace. Now, of course, you know you can uh, put in your earbuds or bury your face in a in a in, your, in a device of your own. We have methods for tuning these things out. If you live in uh, Seoul, South Korea, you now have advertising squirted into your nose. So there's a smell resembling that of Dunkin' Donuts coffee that's released into the ventilation system of the bus um, as the Dunkin' Donuts jingle plays over the bus's sound system. And this happens just as the bus is pulling up outside a Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> And uh, the driver points out the fact in case you had somehow missed it. There are a lot of areas for further progress. Um, the homework, report cards, little permission slips, and all those little communications that a teacher sends home with uh, students are in many school districts still blank on the back. So here's a gross offense against the efficient use of space. But there's at least one school district in Massachusetts that now uh, sells ad space on the backs of these slips of paper, one of these forward-thinking school districts. I learned that from the Colbert Report, and I think you almost have to be a comedian to wrap your head around um, developments in contemporary culture. Making my way through O'Hare Airport in Chicago, 
I don't feel especially receptive to the message that's applied to the moving handrail of the escalator in an endlessly recurring loop. It says, you're in charge. I don't feel very in charge. It seems like every surface of public space is getting auctioned off to private interests. And I think that's connected to um, a wider sense we have that politics has been captured by such interests. The very idea of a public has been eroded. I get to my gate at the airport with an hour to kill and find that I'm not able to escape the chattering of CNN. If the TV is within view, I find it very difficult not to look at it. The introduction of novelty into your field of view commands what the cognitive psychologists call an orienting response. So an animal turns its eyes and face toward the new thing. And this is an important adaptation in a world of predators, right? Because it could be a python. Well, a new thing appears about every second on TV. The images on the screen jump out of the flow of experience and make a demand on us. In their presence, it's difficult to rehearse um, a remembered conversation, for example. Now, in such situations, people may um, open a novel or stare at their phone precisely in order to tune out the piped-in chatter. In this battle of attentional technologies, what's lost is the kind of public space that's required for a certain kind of sociability. A public space where people are not self-enclosed in the heightened way that happens when our minds are elsewhere than our bodies may feel rich with possibility for spontaneous encounters. Even if we don't converse with others, our mutual reticence is experienced as reticence if our attention is not otherwise bound up, but is rather free to alight upon one another and linger or not because we ourselves are free to pay out our attention in deliberate measures. To be the object of someone's reticence is quite different from not being seen by them. We may have a vivid experience of having encountered another person, even if in silence. Such encounters are always ambiguous, and their need for interpretation gives rise to a train of imaginings, often erotic. I think this is what makes cities exciting. Now, of course, uh, you know, in that airport scene, you can shift in your seat and avert your gaze from the screens. But the fields of view that haven't been claimed for commerce seem to be getting fewer and narrower. The ever more complete penetration of public spaces by attention-getting technologies exploits the orienting response in a way that preempts sociability directing us away from one another and toward a manufactured reality, the content of which is determined from afar by private parties that have a material interest in doing so. In the main currents of psychological research, attention is treated as a resource. A person has only so much of it. But we don't yet have a political economy corresponding to this resource. And so I want to offer the concept of an attentional commons. There are some resources that we hold in common, such as the air we breathe and the water we drink. We take them for granted, but their widespread availability makes everything else we do possible. 
I think the absence of noise is a resource of just this sort. More precisely, the valuable thing that we take for granted is the condition of not being addressed. Just as clean air makes respiration possible, silence, in this broader sense, is what makes it possible to think. And this is no small thing. We give it up willingly when we're in the company of other people with whom we have some relationship. And when we open ourselves to serendipitous encounters with strangers. To be addressed by mechanized means is an entirely different matter. The benefits of silence are off the books. They're not measured directly by gross domestic product, but surely contribute to creativity and innovation and things that economists think about. They don't show up explicitly in social statistics, such as level of educational achievement. Yet one consumes a great deal of silence in the course of becoming educated. Silence is now offered as a luxury good. So um, in the business class lounge at Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris, what you hear is the occasional tinkling of a spoon against China. Uh, There were no ads on the walls and no TVs when I was there. And this silence, I think, is what makes it feel genuinely luxurious. When you step inside and there's these airtight doors that whoosh shut behind you, the difference is nearly tactile. It's like stepping out of hair cloth into satin. Your brow unfurrows itself. Your neck muscles start to relax. And after 20 minutes, you no longer feel exhausted. The hassle lifts. Of course, outside the lounge is the usual airport cacophony. Because we've allowed our attention to be monetized, if you want yours back, you're going to have to pay for it. As the commons gets appropriated, one solution for those who have the means is to leave the commons for private clubs such as the business class lounge. Now, when you consider that it's those in the business lounge who make the decisions that determine the character of the peon lounge, we may start to see these things in a political light. To engage in playful, inventive thinking and possibly create wealth for oneself during those idle hours spent at an airport requires silence. But other people's minds over in the peon lounge or in the bus can be treated as a resource, a standing reserve of purchasing power to be steered according to Uh, innovative marketing ideas hatched by those enjoying silence in the business lounge. When some people treat the minds of other people as a resource, this is not creating wealth. It's a transfer of wealth. The ever greater concentration of wealth in a shrinking elite is surely due to a complex array of, of causes. But let's just throw one more into the mix for consideration and that is the ever more aggressive appropriations of the attentional commons that we've allowed to take place. I think this becomes especially pertinent in an era of big data when we find ourselves the object of attention-getting techniques that are not only pervasive but increasingly well-targeted. There's a lot of talk about a right to privacy in our digital lives. Um, I think we need to sharpen 
the conceptually murky right to privacy by supplementing it with a right not to be addressed. And this would apply not, of course, to those who address me face-to-face as individuals, but to those who never show their face and treat my mind as a resource to be harvested by mechanized means. But uh, intrusive advertising, I think, is just the tip of a much larger cultural iceberg. I think it's fair to say we're living through um, a crisis of attention. And this is now pretty widely remarked upon. Usually it's in the context of some complaint or other about technology. I want to get beneath the debate about technology and consider what I take to be the more fundamental issue that's in play. And that is the question of how we understand the self and its relationship to the world beyond our heads. Our mental lives feel fragmented. And we experience this, I think, as a crisis of self-ownership, that our attention is not simply ours to direct as we will. But often there's no one to blame but ourselves, because there are so many enticements that we willingly invite into our lives, um, from whether it's Candy Crush or porn. We find these no less disturbing than intrusive advertising, as they, they seem to crowd out other forms of engagement with our surroundings, and with other people. What's at stake seems to be nothing less than the question of whether one can maintain a coherent self. I mean, a self that's able to act according to settled purposes and ongoing projects, rather than flitting around. Because attention is so fundamental to our mental lives, this widely felt problem presents a rare occasion when an entire society is compelled to ask uh, once more a very old question, and that is, what does it mean to be human? This question is often more tacit than articulated, but it seems to be in the air these days. In grappling with it, we understandably reach for ideals that lie close to hand in Western culture. Uh, I think the most prominent of these is freedom. And this makes sense. We feel beset by external forces that appropriate our attention. It's indeed our mental freedom that seems to be at stake. And so uh, a political motto comes readily to mind, something like, don't tread on me. But in parsing the problem this way, we quickly run into a difficulty. According to the prevailing notion of freedom, it manifests as preference satisfaction. This is the language of economics. Preferences themselves are said to be beyond rational scrutiny. They express the authentic core of a self whose freedom is realized when there are no obstacles to its preference-satisfying behavior. Discovering your true preferences requires maximizing the number of choices you face, which is precisely the condition that makes for maximum dissipation of one's energies. According to this mindset, mindset, those who present choices to us appear as handmaidens to our own freedom. In other words, the language of freedom, however august its origins in Enlightenment thought, has become the language of marketing. 
No limits, as the credit card offer says. You're in charge. Now, nobody takes the autonomy talk of marketing seriously. But trying to liberate oneself from all this liberation can induce a bit of cognitive dissonance. There doesn't seem to be any culturally respectable ground on which to take a stand against autonomy talk, which is a sort of sly appropriation of our most cherished ideal. Further, the effect of so much solicitude for our freedom and the ever more aggressive presentation of choices is to ratchet up the burden of self-regulation. And indeed, I think uh, strategies for self-regulation and asceticism are having a kind of a renaissance right now, which is a little weird when you think about it. It's an ideal we associate with you know, the monastic tradition, not consumer capitalism. But um, the cognitive psychologists um, have figured out that self-regulation is a resource that we have a finite amount of. It's like a muscle, and it's one that's pretty easily exhausted. You can't do it all day, every day. And I think this, um, this becomes an, an interesting sort of data point when our lives are saturated with manufactured experiences that have been designed around us precisely for the sake of capturing our attention. So in the book, I make an analogy with fast food. Um, Food engineers figured out some time ago how to create these hyper-palatable foods by getting the balance of salt and fat and sugar just right. Um, When we relate to the world through a screen of representations that tap into our hardwired susceptibility for certain kinds of stimulation, human experience has become a highly engineered and therefore a manipulable thing. The natural world might start to seem bland and tasteless, like broccoli compared to Cheetos. So distractibility you might regard as um, sort of the mental equivalent of obesity. And when this is the case, I think self-control is only going to get us so far. It's indispensable at crucial moments But the fuller remedy, I think, is rather to become absorbed in some worthy object that elicits our active involvement in such a way that our mental energies are gathered to a point. Once it is underway, this feels more like abandon than self-control, more like surrender than liberation. I think the language of eroticism is better suited for parsing it than is the language of um, asceticism. Or the liberationist idiom of prickly self-assertion, though I've used that language myself earlier tonight. So let me therefore offer something positive after all this gloomy diagnosis. The word attention is based on a Latin root that means to stretch or make tense. External objects provide an attachment point for the mind, a sufficiently involving object that demands skillful engagement, can pull us out of ourselves to join the world beyond our heads, not as passive consumers of manufactured experiences, but as people who act in the world. 
Skilled practices such as cooking an elaborate meal for an important occasion, playing sports, playing music with other people, building things, fixing things. Such practices establish um, ecologies of attention that can give coherence to our mental lives, however briefly. The perception of a skilled practitioner is, um, is in a sense, tuned to the affordances for action that present themselves in the particular niche of skill that she inhabits. Her activity organizes her perception of the world and dampens extraneous information. Thought and action become unimpeded by the proliferation of choices. Uh, When it goes really well, I think time itself seems to dilate and become something to savor. And when this happens, the burden of self-regulation is greatly reduced. Um, it's, It's like having a really good meal, to continue the eating metaphor. But here's the thing, these, um, these well-ordered ecologies of attention in which people do really impressive things, I think is in tension with the ideal of autonomy, which literally means giving a law to oneself. And I think that is, <laughs> idea is closely allied with the ideal of sincerity, which um, you could define as the notion that you yourself can be the source of the standards by which you judge yourself. The freedom and dignity of the modern self seem to demand radical independence from the surrounding world, a state of self-sufficiency. I think it's an understanding along those lines that hovers in the background when we use words such as individuality and authenticity. We're supposed to live up to an image of existential heroism and become a self-made person, rather than someone who merely replicates the society he lives in or the life and world of his parents. Um, Anything that looks like fate would be the opposite of autonomy. But such a fixation on the self isn't much in evidence when we look at people absorbed in the kind of skilled practices in which individual creativity actually manifests. So in the book, I present these case studies of um, short-order cooks, hockey players, uh, jazz musicians, glassmakers, motorcycle racers, um, scientific communities, and people who build Baroque pipe organs. That's really the heart of the, uh, heart of the book. <clears throat> and in all of these pursuits, people are doing things. And what they do is not simply determined by their own will in glorious isolation. Rather, they achieve competence through submission to things that have their own intractable ways, whether the thing be a musical instrument, a garden, or the building of a bridge. It's in the encounter between the self and the brute alien otherness of the real that beautiful things become possible. For example, the puck-handling finesse of the hockey player. Material things can serve as a kind of authority for us by way of structuring our attention. Now, the terms authority and submission are jarring to the modern ear, and that's precisely the issue that I'm trying to tease out here. 
I should note that there's nothing crucial about physical material in this account. The important thing is rather that we're dealing with objects that are external to the self. And other people fit that description nicely. I think any practice that uh, brings us into cooperation with others or in which we answer to standards that are social in nature can have this unselfing effect. And I'm borrowing that word unselfing from Iris Murdoch, who I think is our best thinker about attention in her uh, philosophical essays. So let me read a quote from her about learning a foreign language by way of an example of something that's not material. She says, if I'm learning, for instance, Russian, I'm confronted by an authoritative structure which commands my respect. The task is difficult, and the goal is distant, and perhaps never entirely attainable. My work is a progressive revelation of something which exists independently of me. Attention is rewarded by a knowledge of reality. Love of Russian leads me away from myself, towards something alien to me, something which my consciousness cannot take over, swallow up, deny, or make unreal. Uh, Here's another example, music. So the kind of collaborative improvisation that takes place between musicians in, say, bluegrass or jazz or classical Indian music is a good example of what I mean by an ecology of attention. It's mutually adaptive. The improvisation is possible because all the parties are attending to one another, and it's fruitful only because they're also steeped in forms. The history of their art has become the genetic material of their own creativity. A a master jazz musician quotes from the real book with the same ease that a master preacher does from the Gospels, and the illusion is gotten. It might be taken up and commented on by the other players. It may be pushed forward toward possibilities that hadn't even existed moments before, because they come into existence only through the improvisation itself. One must be alert and opportunistic. As an ecology, that is how new forms arise. Now note that worries about conformity versus individuality are simply put aside in this account of creativity that I've just sketched. More strongly, membership in a community is a prerequisite to creativity. What it means to learn Russian is to become part of the community of Russian speakers, without whom there would be no such thing as Russian, likewise with jazz. These communities and aesthetic traditions provide a kind of cultural jig within which our energies get ordered. Now, to me, that sounds obvious, but it's at odds with the whole tradition of individualism. Uh, Descartes set out to, quote, reject example or custom in order to reform my own thoughts and to build upon a foundation which is completely my own. His point was to free his mind from any taint of the kind of authority that operates in communities. Hundreds of years later, Norman Mailer was still doggedly trying to secure the dignity of the self against the influence of other people. Uh, To live authentically, he said, one has to, quote, 
divorce oneself from society, to exist without roots, to set out on that uncharted journey into the rebellious imperatives of the self, which reads as sort of as a cartoon of autonomy. Um, Richard said 45 minutes. I wanted to keep this shorter so we have time to hear his thoughts as well before opening it up. So by way of, um, I can't really conclude, but just uh, by way of finishing, ending anyway, um, I think at this point in the history of the West, we can notice that the grand liberationist project leaves us isolated. Many inherited forms of cultural authority have been dismantled. And so each of us, as a sovereign individual, faces the problem of composing a coherent life on his or her own. Given the explosion of options, this requires more self-regulation than is uh, certainly than is very comfortable uh, for most of us. <laughs> um, the actual effect of so much autonomy is to make us more pliable to those who want to monetize our attention. We may need to reinterpret what are often taken to be sources of unfreedom in the liberal tradition and view them rather as the framing conditions for many of the most worthwhile human performances. This would be to shift one's, gate, one's concern from freedom to agency. And the, uh, the important thing then is not to guard one's independence, but to become skilled. Thank you. Well, this is a really uh, rich talk, and I'm sure there are lots of uh, questions um, uh, questions <laughs> uh, that you want to, to pose to Matt. Um, I have just a couple of observations uh, about this. Um, uh, and one of them uh, comes from uh, a remark by the uh, cognitive uh, psychologist Lionel Festinger uh, that we pay attention to things uh, that we've struggled to understand. It's the basis of what he calls um, focal attention. and comes out of a theory of cognitive dissonance. And basically the idea of Festinger is, is that the reason that um, there is, if you want to use the term, an attention deficit in modern society is uh, something like uh, 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 a, an ethos of user-friendly. For him, a difficult computer program, for instance, is something that you master more deeply because it's unfriendly. To you, you've struggled to understand it. And his take on this uh, political economy of, uh, of attention that you so beautifully described is that what underlies it is something which is um, the notion that uh, uh, 
uh, think should be user-friendly. They should not be difficult. Uh, <clears throat> so it's by, and um, that's the value of cognitive dissonance. Now, he happens also, he was, he just died. He happened to be an unregenerate Marxist, which, of course, I loved. So he believed in, in cultural contradictions and structural contradictions as being the stuff of creating consciousness. But you may put that as the Marxism aside. <clears throat> but it is a way of saying that, that what you've described is not merely a colonization, but it follows a certain rule that it makes very little demands mm-hmm. on you. Mm-hmm. I think that <clears throat> everything you just said fits um, nicely with the thought that um, we increasingly encounter the world through representations that save us from a direct confrontation with things that resist our will. Um, There's a beautiful book called Mediated by a guy named Thomas de Zengatita, if I pronounced it right. He points out that representations are always addressed to us, unlike dumb nature, which just sits there indifferent. And so, for that reason, they're fundamentally flattering. They place each of us at the center of a little me world. Um, I think in, in, in the book, there's a chapter entitled Virtual Reality as Moral Ideal, um, which is actually not about virtual reality. It's about children's television, uh, where I compare uh, the old Mickey Mouse cartoons from the early and middle 20th century to the current iteration. So in the old ones, it's, it's all slapstick, right? It's the capacity of material stuff to generate demonic violence and frustration, and that's why they're so damn funny. I think it's, yeah, it's, um, it, I think it's bringing forward this sort of truth that we, to live in a world of artifacts and inexorable physical laws means to be subject to what Kant would call heteronomy. You're subject to rule by things alien to you. Um, whereas the ideal of virtual reality seems to be to save us from precisely that. Um, in fact, one of the uh, sort of pioneers of virtual reality um, has said that the animating spirit of it, I'm talking about actual virtual reality now, was to explore the possibilities of human experience without the limits that define us as humans. So that, I think, is the kind of opening, that, that sort of idealistic um, aspiration to liberate us from limits, I think, mm. opens us to um, all manner of manipulation. Well, the other comment I'd make to you is about the notion of skilled attention. And here we may, I don't know if we disagree, but I have a a different understanding about this. When you build up a skill, there's a kind of rhythm of developing uh, a skill. Um, In the kind of first stage of it, you build up a kind of capacity so that you don't have to think about what you're doing. That is, you develop tacit knowledge which is a kind of inattention. You know, I know that if I reach out, well, I don't reach out for the uh, baseball, but were I to reach out for a baseball, 
I, I have a kind of prehension about where I don't have to think, oh, now, you know, reach out this far rather than this far. And in music, which I, I know much better, uh, you know, we can make a, a note on the cello or violin without thinking, that's where my finger goes. But the next stage of that is that there's a self-critical thing where you're bringing this tacit knowledge, you're making it conscious, you're criticizing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I put my finger in a place that isn't so good. Yeah, yeah. And the thing about that is that that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is reinscribing mm-hmm. that all that work, uh, that, that attending to as habit, as tacit knowledge, so that you're at a higher level, you're once again not attending to what you're doing. Now, that's a different kind of, in the craft world, in the world we know as as makers, that's a different, really a different relation to attention. It's uh, it's a more Hegelian one. Different than what? Well, it's different than becoming more attentive to, oh, mm-hmm. because the, the idea is no longer having to attend right. to. It's a much more Hegelian notion about how skill develops. Um, two, three thoughts come to mind. One is, um, yeah. I'm, I'm sure you too have read uh, Michael Polanyi on this. So he, yeah. he points out that, um, so there's this tacit knowledge that you build up by when you become competent in something. But there are these moments when you when you become self-critical and you begin to analyze your skill. So the the pianist starts to analyze his his motion or the batter, his swing, and that tends to degrade their performance. Right. But that become that analyzed skill becomes the the material for a reintegration into sort of where it becomes more automatic again, but now better because he's gone through that destructive analysis. So that's consistent with what you just said. There's a, um, there's a fairly recent debate in philosophy. Um, uh, the, the, sort of the phrase is non-conceptual mental content. And the two, yeah, so <laughs> the two figures here are Hubert Dreyfus and John McDowell. So Dreyfus is was his uh, most famous as an interpreter of Heidegger. He has this notion of smooth coping, um, where the it's sort of a corrective to the idea that every action is caused by some prior mental event. So in smooth coping, your actions are just elicited from you by the situation without articulate thought. So, you know, the, the probably easiest example is tying your shoes in the morning. You just do it. Um, it's, a, it's a skill that you mastered long ago. McDowell offers a sort of counter-corrective to this that's kind of in lines with you, what you were saying. He says we never really turn off our are thinking in that way. Tying your shoes is sort of too easy an example, but in things that, this is now me, not McDowell, in things that we really care about, like music or going fast on a motorcycle, um, um, you always have that self-critical element. And that means that um, you have to keep sort of obtrusively attending to the ingredients of your skill and sort of fine-tuning it, um, modifying it. And I think that's especially true if the activity is risky. 
and and you face um, and especially if you face hazards that are not available to perception. So the example I give in the book, leaning hard through a corner on a motorcycle and there's you know, a patch of gravel on the road around a blind curve. That's not available to perception. You can't integrate it into your skill. And what that means is that you have to actively sort of form hypotheses about bad things that are possible and to project them out into the world. Um, so this, this interrupts your flow, but it's a kind of, it's a balance between that flow state and this more critical um, self-aware state. So, that's maybe more detail than you wanted. Um, but, so your, uh, so for you, the, the question of, Paying attention or not paying attention is not something that's, uh, it's something that has to be set in the context of time, right? That's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way, but um, given that time is finite and attention is certainly finite, it always has that pressure of time. It's not a picture. It's not a representation. It's an event in time. Sure. Sounds good. close. Uh, Let's... Uh, open this up and a lot to talk about here could I ask you to ask a question I know it's difficult and, oh, there's a microphone a yeah where oh by the way I should tell you that the hashtag for this I hate these I loathe them the hashtag I can't even find it thank God uh, uh, what it's on, oh, it's on the screen. There's a way to interrupt attention. I have to, I have to tweet instead of listen. Uh, let's see. Let's start with this gentleman in the back. Okay. Hi, I'm Ramin, a member of public. I wanted to know your opinion about selfies. What are we doing to ourselves by taking selfies? <laughs> um... Well, one thing about doing uh, book publicity is you get photographed a lot. And I've started to have a lot more sympathy for this. Is it the Eskimos or somebody who say that when you, when you're, you have your photograph taken, it takes part of your soul? <laughs> now, if you're taking it yourself, I don't know. I, I don't really have an opinion about selfies. Um, you, Richard? <laughs> I, I mean, it's, yeah, you're, I mean... I guess it's part of the sort of social media kind of Weltanschauung. Uh, is that where you're you're presenting yourself, you're offering representations of yourself to others, and so the kind of performance, I guess, and that's that's a different that's right. way of you don't being. Have to have yeah, okay. Have the, the temptation of having a microphone is to just make stuff up. So. Can can I call on you? Can you get him? No, here's a here's a microphone. No, it's it's broadcast, so we need uh, we need to do this. It's security. Well, it's not security, but it is related. Which is you you seem to be quite careful not to sort of t- pick a fight with technology or put technology in the firing line within the context of your argument. Why is that? And and. Where does technology more generally sort of fit into the kind of political economy of attention that you're describing? Because we're clearly both sort of subject to it from 
big data and other um, algorithmic kind of technologies. But on the other hand, we're doing a lot of this to ourselves. So where does it fit in? Yeah. Um, well, first, I guess just a, a kind of um, beef with the very word. Um, it seems like technology is a word we use when we don't know how something works. Um, you know, it's, 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 it comes down to diodes and resistors and gears and levers, and um, it seems like technologists themselves rarely use the word. So it, it basically means magic, but given that it's a real thing, we really do have magic um, as a cultural kind of um, quasi-religious um, force. Um, so I guess the reason I'm not um, making technology the focal point for this talk is that I want to um, kind of shift our attention to the intention behind the uh, deployment of it, particularly in public spaces. That is to make it a question of political economy instead. Um, there's nothing... I mean, that's that's... Maybe that's uh, a little too simple because there are tech, it's technological developments that sort of turbocharge and make possible um, various interventions in our lives uh, in the economy that wouldn't be possible otherwise. But I want to um, I want to kind of re I want to locate human agents. I guess uh, to criticize, and um, and so you know the example of the airport. Um, it needn't be that way. Uh, often when we talk about technology, there's this idea that you know, this has its own imperatives. That it it's sort of the geist realizing itself in history or something. But in fact, in other countries, they just they just don't do this. Um, you know the French. They have a very keen sense of how the fabric of everyday life can be degraded. Um, and in the Anglo-American world, we, we, we make fun of them viciously for their regulatory zeal. But Christ, um, it seems to me there's a very good case to be made for, um, for regulating some of these things. Let me just give you an example, just to kind of give you the affective um, where I'm coming from. I was in uh, the 30th Street train station in Philadelphia, which is this beautiful old train station. Um, and, but you could tell that it was beautiful only by trying to peer around or behind these swimming pool-sized banners that covered the, uh, covered the walls. So this is not a high-tech thing. It's just turning a, an, an unavoidable public surface into a site of marketing. And I, it felt like I was no longer in a place that was really a place. It was a mere surface for the display of enticements to be somewhere else. It was a, a resort in the Bahamas. So this is called a station domination campaign. All these banners were for the single enterprise. It's, uh, resort in the Bahamas, and it made me feel like doesn't Philadelphia have any pride? Because um, it really did seem like a public patrimony had simply been sold. Um, whereas the Grand Central Terminal in New York, there was a concerted effort um, to change it. It used to resemble, uh, they called it an indoor Times Square, mm. which was not meant as a compliment. In the 90s, someone 
some committee made a decision to replace all the advertising with retail, which is actually quite muted. It's not very aggressive. And in fact, I've learned they're getting more revenue from the retail than they were getting from the advertising. And it's a very civilized, uh, unusually civilized public space. So uh, I, I think we shouldn't feel too um, powerless about these things. Uh, do you mind if I just make a response to this? Sorry. <laughs> I, I think your question is a really interesting interesting one. And it's not about technology. It's about uh, how we organize technological capacities. You think of the difference between, say, Skype and a Windows, static Windows-based use of a computer. If you don't like what you see in a window, you just move to a next one. It's a photograph. It comes back to the issue of representation. It's representation on offer, and if it's painful, uh, it's never going to say to you, do not touch me, I am important. You know, it's not set up that way. Whereas when you're using something like Skype, uh, you can't just say, well, I didn't like what you said. Goodbye. Well, you could say that. But the technology is one which has a continuity to it. And to me, a lot of it, it keeps people engaged and attentive to each other because it's not a picture representation on screen. And, I don't know, I, we could spend all evening on this. To me, this is the, the dangers, the attention dangers in the way we've organized technology are essentially photographic, whereas the good use of it is essentially uh, video or filmic, that is, between the sort of fixed image and something that has more narrative qualities. And what's exploitable, particularly, is the fixed image, which fits all your, char- your characteristics of representation and consumption. And it, um, it, in a way, puts the consumer in, uh, the, in, the, uh, in, in control. You know, there's no reason why we had to use the technologies we have in the form of windows. That's a choice which conforms to a certain kind of ideology of attention that Matt is talking about. So I think there's a real connection here. I I don't want to monopolize the uh, conversation here, but um, I want to give a a concrete example um, by way of um, of technology and its its intention. So uh, I'm just going to read this a paragraph rather than make it up uh, freestyle. So computer game developers uh, have lately been complaining that the landscape for mobile gaming has been transformed by the business model of the gambling industry. Now, this sounds implausible at first blush. What, you can't win a jackpot when playing Candy Crush, mm-hmm. so how is it like gambling? Isn't it the hope of winning that keeps a person at a slot machine? Well, apparently not. Um, there's a fantastic book called Addiction by Design yeah. by N- Natasha Dow Scholl, 
And she tells us that the point for hardcore machine gamblers is to get in the zone, which is a place of quasi-autistic, repetitive absorption, where the frustrations of life beyond the screen fall away. So the mature gambler, um, as the industry refers to them, knows better than to hope to come out ahead. Feeding money into the machine is just how you keep it turned on. And so apparently the, the ascendant model for mobile gaming apps is to require payment to keep progressing to the next level. And such progress and a corresponding acceleration of the rate of play is key to the behaviorist conditioning that the games achieve. Uh, the reward schedule, uh, as the behaviorists say, has to keep, must be carefully calibrated to establish an addiction. The dopamine reward circuits of our brains are highly plastic, plastic susceptible to being rewired, and this is the foundation of the business model. And the relevant psychology got worked out decades ago with rats. So the, the gambling industry, and now I guess some of the mobile gaming stuff, is, uh, is truly chilling. I have the whole chapter devoted to it. Yeah. Um, because they're very self-conscious about what they're doing um, uh, and sort of bre- breathtakingly um, cynical about it. So, so there's a case of, of a nakedly um, manipulative intention. Let's take, yes, this gentleman right here. And then you. So maybe just continuing on from that uh, final question there. Um, you were talking a moment ago about your, your hashtag um, that could be used through today's discussion. And so I guess my question is, how do we, you know, with a title like that, how do we flourish an age of distraction? So one could be following the hashtag throughout the talk, seeing who's tweeting about it, perhaps picking up certain quotes of the great things you've said this evening, and maybe people taking photographs and have put those up on Twitter as well. But at the same time, that means you've sort of left the physical and the moment of what you were just saying to actually reflect on what was just said and just tweeted. So how do you combine those two? Because clearly this is a very effective tool. It's now allowed people to capture uh, great notes collectively, crowdsource the notes at one level, but another level it's acted as a distraction. Um, I, I don't have anything especially illuminating to say on that, I'm afraid. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Let's take this lady now, dear. Hi, thanks for your talk. Um, I'm, I'm still wondering if there is a way to flourish in an age of distraction, and if so, what that is. And if not, is the only kind of solution to escape it all and move out to the country and live like Professor <laughs> Crusoe? I, I think not. I think um, so. The uh, so the the sort of one of the refrains in in the book is is uh, joining the world as opposed to escaping it and um, and reclaiming the real. And by that I mean um, skillful engagement with things that. Uh, are demanding, and so the, it, the really the idea of skilled practices is the the, po- the positive hook here. And it's not that in becoming skilled you somehow become immune to distraction. Um, it's not you know it's not a self help book that promises to, to deliver us in that way. Um, 
but I think, um, I mean, partly it's a, I guess, a theoretical point that when you, when you, when you try to understand the relation between self and world that's happening when you're immersed in a skilled practice, it um, it gives you a very different picture of the self and one that I think is sort of liberating from uh, the kind of ideology by which the proliferation of choices keeps... Um, makes us more pliable to um, attempts to appropriate our attention. That's a horrible sentence. But um, I guess it's a matter of achieving some independence from uh, mass entertainments would be one very simple way to put it. This is really the heart of your book, isn't it? That rather than conceiving of the choice of, of paying an uh, this preference model of paying attention. It's something that draws you out of yourself. That yeah. it demands attending to. And that means you're drawn out of yourself. That's right. I mean, getting that underway is maybe the, the tricky part because it does require actively excluding all the other things that grab at your attention. I think the, the ascetic spirit is... Um, is indispensable to get education underway um, or you know, sort of going deep into some skilled practice. But that at some point, it, the self-regulation, the burden of that is lightened. Um, so, I mean, one thing that distinguishes human beings, you could say, is that we're evaluative creatures. Um, and animals are moved by appetites that are fixed, and so are we, but we can also form a second order of desire, a desire for a desire. When we entertain some picture of the kind of person we would like to be, someone who's better not because uh, she has more self-control, but because she's moved by worthier desires. Um, I think acquiring the tastes of a serious person is what we call education. So one of the sort of questions in the book is whether that has a future, <laughs> um, given that we're um, sort of always being addressed with things that are much more immediately engaging. I mean, and it's not that uh, I don't offer myself as a guru on this. I've, my attention span is horribly degraded. It, was a, it took twice as long to write this book as I, as I had hoped um, because of that. Uh, oh, gosh, so many. Uh, how about this lady down in the front? We have to save time for a book signing, so you can ask him uh, lots of these questions. Um, I remember when Ronald Reagan wanted to project advertising on the moon. Um, that. And that, and he thought that was all right. And we seem to have come around. I'm wondering when they're going to announce that that's is that happening. real? Is yeah, yeah. This is when he he wanted to. Yeah. Okay. And um, sounds and, like something I would make up. <laughs> it's real. And and even going and living in the wilderness requires a massive amount of skill. Mm. You have to learn how to to do that. Riding a horse in the mountains requires knowing how to ride a horse really well and and the knowledge of the landscape. But I'm curious what you think of, there's, you know, the artist Christo, 
has been trying for years, and there's been a court case against him in a, to, to put um, fabric over one of the wild rivers, and I can't remember which, which one, in the state of Colorado. And the, some locals are saying it will bring, it will help the economy, it will bring tourists, and the people who love the wilderness are saying, is, you know, this is insane. Now, here's somebody who's an established artist. But I'm, my, my question is, what do you think of this sort of thing? Well, one thing I'm going to pick up on is um, so often um, you hear that, well, yes, there's all this advertising and public spaces, but it's, it's defraying some public cost, so things become less expensive for the citizen, sort of a transfer of wealth to the public through advertising. Um, th- th- that claim bears scrutiny, um, and I'm emboldened to say that in part by a recent experience. I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times where I so I was comp- talking about going through airport security, and at least in America, the bottoms of the bins that you put your stuff on for going through X-ray screening are, are papered with ads. It's no big deal, but the visual clutter makes it very easy to miss, for example, a lipstick-sized flash memory stick against a fanned-out picture of L'Oreal lipstick colors, as happened to me. Um, so, so in this op-ed, I sort of flippantly said, you know, somehow uh, L'Oreal has the TSA on its side. Um, well, the New York Times, anything that even smells like a factual claim has to be checked because they don't want to be embarrassed. So we had to follow the money. Does, what is the relationship here? Where does the follow the money? Um, the bottom line is that uh, we did some calculations, and uh, what, the, what the airport gets is free bins for having the ads in them, and they get the stainless steel tables that you slide them along. I made some generous estimates as to what all this would cost. I tripled that because it's government procurement. <laughs> and I came up with a figure for a medium-sized airport of $120,000 as a one-time transfer. Now, in the context of airport operations, to me that sounds like it's probably a pretty small number. But why not? Where's the downside? The downside is not articulated. It's this minute, diffuse hassle uh, that we all feel. So, um, yeah, I think this, this sort of readiness to defer to the selling off of public space for advertising uh, is, is just it's, it's a reflex that um, we should be more critical of. Let's take one more question. Uh, we have to be out of here by 8. That's why I'm hurrying us along. This gentleman here. What's your view of uh, <clears throat> going from, let's say, commercial distraction to artistic distraction? So use that space for mm. visual arts or, let's say, this <clears throat> the piece of paper might have a, a quotation. Um, so mm. there's no... Uh, financial incentive, but there, mm-hmm. uh, there is a sort of a, uh, mm-hmm. a community in, uh, I see. movement. It's still a distraction. Yeah, I don't, uh, I would have to think about that. I mean, ads can be very artistic. 
um, I mean, when the Super Bowl, I, you know, I like to watch it for the ads uh, as much as anything because they, they can be really great. So, um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, do you have any thoughts on that, Richard? I do. Uh, I've thought about this a lot. I have a night job as a musician. And I've thought a lot about just your question in terms of artistic practice for musicians. One of the, the things we need to do constantly is um, to um, experience the absence of doing something and just float in a space where we're concentrating on nothing. It's in a way the obverse of your jazz example, mm. which is that you simply, you're completely passive, you're listening to anything, you have kind of random attention. Sometimes I practice by just listening to street noise that way. Mm. Uh, and it's a kind of inattentiveness which strengthens your attention later. Every musician has this. It's, it's what we like about what we call listening to silence. And the other thing about, so that absence and, and attention are in a kind of, they're in a kind of dialectical relationship with each other. If you're listening all the time intently to somebody else in performing, in improvising, you play very badly. Your mind has to wander. They spark off something in you, you're thinking about something totally different, and you bring something new into the conversation, which is improvising with somebody else. So this is, it's not, you know, attending is not uh, just a virtue in and of itself. In, it's a cost. In our, well, it's a cost, but it's also a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, and frequently when somebody plays better, than I'll ever play. My mind wanders about, well, what happens? What am I doing here? You know, know, there are all sorts of sides to it. The other thing I would say about this is that what's very important for musicians and I think for other artists is that when the mind wanders, when you wander, you're hearing things that you didn't expect to hear. That's what... uh, Guy Debord called a derive, a derive, you know, that suddenly you just, you know, you're surprised by something new. You weren't looking for it. You weren't focusing on it. But it came to you un, unbidden. Um, frequently, when um, I, I'm a cellist, uh, and cellists frequently make mistakes about the heaviness of their upper arms when they put it on the string. It's just a it's a defect of, of the way the human body is constructed with the cello. Those mistakes are heaven. But, you, you know, they happen by accident. You're trying to, pre- you know, concentrate and prevent them. But when they happen, you hear sounds that normally you don't make. So that kind of derive experience where uh, you're suddenly attending to something that you weren't concentrating on. We've suspended, we've let go, where something comes to you unforeseen, is another part of the issue about concentration. And I don't know, maybe we're on a different page about this. I mean, to me, concentration is, is, I believe everything you say 
except as it applies to art. Because I think in art we're doing something which is, which requires so much suspension, surprise, you know, my God, did that happen? Letting go, mm. sort of looking around, wandering. And if we don't have that, those experiences, lightness, superficial, all of that mm-hmm. is a way of feeding the, the artistic engine. And if we don't have that, if, if you know, where there's something, something goes dead in us as creators. And it sounds like to, in order to have the space for that, you need to not be depressed. You need to have Yes, you need, not to be, you need not to be addressed. But you yourself have to lose the desire yes, sure. to interact. Yeah. You know, it's... Um, I give you an example. Of, the greatest example of this I know uh, was uh, <laughs> I listened. My, one of my uh, teachers was Rostropovich, and I listened to him play one time a Beethoven sonata with uh, I think it was was it Galel? No. Yeah, maybe Galel. Anyhow, it doesn't matter. And they're not paying attention to each other in the beginning. They're each doing their own thing. They're two master musicians, you know. Uh, they're just waiting to have their part. But there's a kind of chemistry that happens with that. And after a while, it's sort of like, oh, is that what you're doing? Oh, I'm going to pay attention to you. And then it goes away. So it's a kind of drama of attending to the other, leaving them. It was one of the most, I think it was mm. Beethoven Opus 69, it was one of the most thrilling performances because whether they were in relation to each other or separate became a kind of uh, drama of mm. its own. So, I, I don't know, maybe this is... Maybe this is a great irony. You've turned out to be more of a sociologist than I am. <laughs> I don't know. Anyhow, I want to. You should have the last word. I want to thank Richard Sennett for doing this. Uh, I'm really honored and delighted to to be on stage with him, and thank all of you for for coming out. Thanks. Good night. Thank you.